Welcome to Fintech Insider Interviews. Today we chat with two awesome guests, both leading innovation in two different areas, blockchain and wealth management. First, I talked to Jeff Garzin, co-founder of Block, about his current work in blockchain and how he got into coding. Jeff's a pretty interesting guy. Then I talked to Dave Bruno, the head of UBS Wealth Management Innovation. I hope you enjoy. So I have the good fortune today to be talking to Jeff Garzik, a luminary in the blockchain space, a man with all kinds of history uh, in the open source space as well. Jeff, for our audience, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, I picked up online from doing a little bit of research that you've written code that's gone into the Linux kernel. What, what does that mean and, and, and what, what got you interested in, in coding in the first place? Hey, Simon. Uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, I. Uh started programming at the age of eight. So I was, I've been a nerd all my life. I've uh, enjoyed uh, building things, whether it's uh, in the computer or uh, out in the real world, uh, you know, building model rockets, uh, tinkering on cars, um, that sort of thing. And quite frankly, uh, software engineering always uh, attracted me because it seemed, uh, at least to my mind, far easier than uh, building something in the real world, uh, building a a bed or a car or a machine. It was uh, so much easier to write some code and then hit a virtual button and have the computer tell me if my code is uh, compiled or not, if it passes all the tests. It just seems like it was, uh, a, you know, an automaton, an assistant that uh, would make my life easier. So I've always been a software programmer. And uh, early involvement in the uh, open source world came sort of naturally. Uh, I went to Georgia Tech and there was a lot of open source and uh, they did, they call it free software at the time work, where it was really very much a meritocracy. All you had, you didn't need a license, you didn't need a professional application, you didn't need a degree. All you need to do is show up and contribute code that works, that uh, is of high quality, that passes review from the others uh, in that uh, coding project. And my interest naturally led to uh, Linux, which uh, at the time, Linus Torvalds was still at the University of Helsinki. This was the the early to mid-90s. And there was a brand new operating system that cracked open the uh, the sort of the Microsoft uh, licensing model and stranglehold of operating systems for the computers. It was very exciting, but it was also uh, to, you know, the establishment, as it were, in the tech world, uh, a little bit nervous. It was a different uh, intellectual property and copyright model. But uh, that was uh, really where I got my uh, start in uh, programming at large just simply sending changes uh, to Linus Torvalds, the inventor of Linux. That led to uh, him accepting changes as, uh, as I was a volunteer at the time. And you uh, develop a uh, pattern of trust with the other developers over time as you contribute more and more changes. And so eventually I became the uh, storage driver and network driver maintainer for the uh, Linux kernel. And so if you store any data under Linux in a data center or on your Android phone, or uh, you can communicate through a uh, wired networking interface, which those are becoming a little bit more rare these days, uh, you're uh, running through some of my code. So it was uh, really a 
a fascinating time to uh, learn about what was then a new discipline that's internet software engineering, collaborating with people who you may not have ever met, collaborating with people from universities, uh, companies, uh, their, their own rooms around the world sitting in their pajamas. You never know uh, who your collaborators are sometimes. You just look at uh, the changes they commit, the changes they contribute, and uh, the uh, review and feedback that they provide. It's a, it was then a new engineering discipline. Uh, it was very, very much use the internet as your test lab, as uh, Linus Torvalds was fond of saying. It's the world's biggest test lab, far bigger than any your corporation or uh, nonprofit uh, testing center. And that was, uh, that was an exciting time, a, a time of many lessons learned, a lot of uh, pragmatism in that community. And uh, I see a lot of parallels in uh, blockchain with that today. No, that's pretty interesting uh, parallel you draw there. And I think there is something really cool about knowing that every time somebody downloads a file to their Android device, a bit of code you wrote is, is being written. So if anybody's downloading some apps from Google Play right now, or even downloading this podcast and listening on an Android device, which let's uh, let's just say I'm a big Android fan, so I hope you are. And if you're on iPhones, I'll, I'll let you off. We love you, really. Um, then Then that's pretty cool. And and I think you, I want to come back to this parallel you make between you know the way that uh, in the beginning Linux was really the Wild West, and now it's you know the backbone of most of the modern internet, most data centers, most uh, most devices sold on the planet that are that are phones in people's hands. Bitcoin has kind of uh, a similar reputation as being in the Wild West at the moment. You know, pe- people are kind of concerned about a checkered past, maybe about some some image issues it might have. But talk us a little bit about the story of how you got into Bitcoin and the whole blockchain space. And then, you know, tell us a little bit about um, how you think that might evolve and how, how perceptions could or should maybe change around that. Absolutely. I uh, draw so many parallels both uh, uh, in the industry itself between blockchain, Bitcoin and uh, the earlier days of Linux as well as uh, the pers- my personal journey as well. I found Bitcoin in July of 2010 in what I have termed the great slash dotting. At the time, there was a uh, website called slash.org, uh, tagline news for nerds, which posted all things uh, techie and nerdy and interesting developments in uh, technology, internet, internet culture. And they one day posted a story about Bitcoin, this uh, decentralized digital currency. And uh, in my background, I had not only had a uh, experience with the kernel and networking itself, but uh, with my Linux experience, that was the birth of cloud. The uh, very first uh, cloud idea came from something called the Beowulf clusters, which was a uh, project which was very new and revolutionary at the time, the idea that instead of uh, building these huge, expensive networks, huge, expensive, almost mainframe-esque Unix servers, uh, et cetera, to uh, run a a high-speed data center, the idea was take millions of cheap computers, the cheapest you can find, and network them together and then use software to 
predict the failure rates and handle the failure of these cheap computers. The theory being that if you have a massive cloud of computers, any number of them will predictably be failing at any given time. If you can write software that works around that, then you can start to uh, make those cheap computers do pretty amazing things. I had uh, experience in these early clusters, which uh, turned into the million computer clouds that Amazon, Microsoft, and Google uh, now deploy, and uh, distributed computing. And I had thought to myself, uh, I love payments. I was uh, one of the earliest of early adopters of the uh, Visa debit cards, which uh, were the uh, modern day sort of cashless, first cashless example that U.S. citizens got to experience. So I was a, uh, a payment nerd as well as a uh, distributed uh, computing nerd. And all of that uh, seemed to coalesce with Bitcoin. Bitcoin was currency, it was payments, it was distributed computing, it was internet, it was internet culture, it was economics. It uh, really wrapped everything uh, together in uh, one amazing package. And I was absolutely intrigued. I was also a little bit put out in that I had uh, assured myself, I had done much thinking on the subject, that Bitcoin was impossible. There was absolutely no way that uh, you can have a uh, network of people all around the globe, some of them who might be malfeasant, some of them uh, might have malfunctioning software, that uh, it was absolutely impossible, I was certain, to uh, create something like Bitcoin. And so whenever I'm, uh, you know, proved wrong, whenever I'm presented with facts that contradict uh, what I've thought about, that's uh, absolutely a point for intrigue. So, uh, you know, I clicked, I downloaded, it was open source. And so I could immediately uh, see that even though this uh, strange new invention, blockchain, uh, obviously that, uh, that word really uh, hadn't even taken off yet. Uh, this uh, was a collection of well-known uh, pieces, well-known cryptographic algorithms, well-known techniques, but it was put together in a genius uh, a way, a new, unique way that uh, really proved, again, that sort of cloud 2.0, if you have, uh, going back to that uh, Beowulf cluster example, if you have thousands or hundreds of thousands of nodes all around the world in this Bitcoin network, you can program the software to assume that some of them are going to fail. Some of them are going to uh, be malfeasant, uh, whether intentionally or not. And software can correct for those errors, as it were. And it indeed did. So the uh, experience of the software was very much similar to what uh, was then the cloud industry. And from an open source perspective, very similar again, both in my personal experience with Linux, was with Bitcoin. I simply downloaded the source code, created some changes, and mailed those uh, patches, which are software changes in text form, mailed these patches to the uh, founder, Satoshi Nakamoto. And uh, I didn't. I knew that was an alias. I, I've never met Satoshi, for the record. That's a frequently asked question. Um, we corresponded entirely through uh, public forums and private email. But it was the same experience with Linux. You uh, 
it's a meritocracy. You download the software, and if you want to make a change, you uh, provide that change to others, your peers, peer review occurs, and it's uh, either accepted or uh, it's rejected with some uh, feedback for further improvement. It's uh, paralleled almost exactly my experience with Linux, where if you stick around, if you learn, if you are humble and accept feedback, uh, you know, no, Jeff, that is completely the wrong change. You're absolutely uh, crazy to make that change to, uh, yeah, that, uh, that change needs improvement, but it's good if you can sort of swallow your ego and uh, let uh, feedback uh, come towards you, then you in turn become a valued contributor. And that's uh, that was really the, the story of uh, early Bitcoin was it was a lot, uh, not just me, of uh, interested people who ran this software that had been created by someone who was obviously using a pseudonym. And because we had that source code, we could prove to ourselves that the system was secure. We did not need to trust uh, anyone's word that it was secure. We could uh, just examine the source code, open the car and look under the hood, so to speak. It's pretty interesting how those two things come together. You, the cloud was making somebody else's data center or somewhere else more efficient and cheaper. But now, for the first time, what you have is all of the computers in the world effectively running the same network as rather than this kind of centralized model where you've got you know Facebook and Google who all have their own servers and they run you know highly available and they run amazing um, you know, internet scale services. But for the first time now, you and I can be part of running a, a really big network. That's that's a, a watershed moment. And I'm interested, really finding it quite intriguing how the two main experiences you had with cloud and with Linux kind of came together to to make this make this come come true. And that kind of brings us right up to today. Really, we we find ourselves in a world in which Bitcoin has definitely made a splash. You know, people have heard of this thing. It's it's definitely made some some covers of of various magazines and, and headlines. But it's, it appears to be something that's got a bit of a branding issue. You know, people see this um, certainly from a financial services perspective. Um, I had one uh, financial executive describe it as being like um, being like cancer almost. It's something that you just can't say and can't be around. And this image problem seems to be very much in the way. But this is something that was solved historically with Linux by making things that are enterprise friendly. And I know you were very close to and I think even worked at, at a company called Red Hat. Can you explain how um, you know, Red Hat made Linux uh, something that was more enterprise friendly and then maybe introduce the company that you founded, a company called Block, um, B-L-O-Q, um, and, and see if there's anything kind of there? Is, am I onto the right lines here? Absolutely. The uh, Again, the parallels are uh, fairly striking is uh, in the early days of Linux, one uh, anecdote that I like to describe is it was very, uh, the user interfaces were very rough. It was more uh, techie oriented, techie friendly than for uh, Joe Sixpack, the average user. On the engineering side, on the open source side, it was uh, similarly uh, had, a, had its rough edges on uh, the personality and uh, image problems and uh, image issues. And uh, one uh, anecdote I like to relate in the early days of Linux there was a, uh, a massive multinational based in Japan, which wanted to get involved in Linux. They saw this uh, this amazing font of innovation. They saw that uh, 
their uh, their best programmers were downloading this software and tinkering with it. They saw that university students were installing it uh, on their computers and uh, trying to experiment and grow and build their skills. There was just obviously a, a massive amount of developer attention pointed at Linux in the uh, early to mid 90s. And this uh, large Japanese company was very excited from the uh, engineer level to the senior leadership level at the top to get involved. They, uh, they threw the switch. They uh, dedicated uh, a team of developers as well as uh, marketing, et cetera, outside of engineering to uh, start uh, enabling uh, this company's hardware on Linux, make it uh, very Linux friendly. They were a uh, hardware manufacturer. And they proceeded through this, and then they made their first contribution to the Linux kernel, which was in the form of a patch sent to an email list. That was how changes were submitted to the software at that time. And uh, to put it lightly, the, uh, the review, the response from the uh, existing engineers was... Uh, uh, not positive. It was, uh, as uh, in the tone of engineers, it was somewhat uh, uncouth, a bit unprofessional. You know, what is this uh, four-letter word uh, code? Uh, you know, what the F, etc. There were uh, a lot of uh, reactions like that when, uh, at the time, this was a major initiative at this firm. And uh, just culturally, be, after uh, engaging so many resources, being met with that response from the engineering community was a major loss of face. And that led to the uh, company pulling back all its efforts and uh, gave Linux a uh, really sour uh, engineering and developer reputation. And this company uh, just said uh, no from the senior leadership level on down for uh, 12 to 24 months. When uh, even its competitors were saying, hey, Linux is something we need to look into, etc. Um, it was just a major slam on the brakes. And that's really where uh, Red Hat, which uh, I worked at for 10 years, uh, really came to the fore is that that enterprise experience was lacking in Linux. And what is that enterprise experience? Well, you open source software is uh, free as in beer, you meaning you don't have to download it. Uh, you don't have to pay anything to download it. And uh, as the activists will tell you, free as in speech. It has a, a copyright and intellectual property license that uh, gives you the freedom to make further changes, publish those changes to the Internet. A very Internet-centric uh, copyright licensing. And uh, yet... If you are a large multinational who wants to contribute to this community, you need to know the uh, community standards and mores and uh, practices. You need to uh, fully understand the software itself. There may be some uh, major, uh, say, you want to add an API to Linux, for example. Well, uh, maybe someone's already working on that API. Maybe that API has already been tried and failed and we've moved on to something better. You really need, uh, a uh, on the uh, support side, you need someone to deliver uh, hot fixes if uh, there's a zero-day DDoS attack out on the Internet that's uh, compromising your customers. 
Um, you need uh, road mapping and connectivity such that uh, the customer who may not be familiar with that developer community can pay someone some money and say, I want this feature and have that uh, appropriately filtered down in a community-friendly, developer-friendly way to those end developers, such that uh, companies who depend on Linux today, they're not depending on a volunteer workforce, volunteer developers who may or may not be there when uh, you know a crisis strikes. They're not they're not looking for a liability structure that it comes from the download it yourself, do it yourself. Uh, commit a lot of IT resources to this piece of software. Enterprise customers, they're used to having IP guarantees, patent guarantees, service level agreements that give them guaranteed response times, direct connectivity into uh, the uh, software development teams, and having the uh, sort of assurance or uh, confidence that someone's going to be there to pick up the phone at 3 a.m. when and if your uh, software breaks. And uh, I really felt, uh, and my co-founder Matthew Rozak at Block felt that that entire experience was uh, missing from blockchain and Bitcoin specifically. Was uh, there was absolutely uh, a, a bit of a well, more than a bit, a uh, quite negative reputation, particularly at large uh, financial institutions, for Bitcoin itself. And the developer experience, the uh, software experience, consuming that software was similarly uh, quite poor. It's, uh, again, very uh, much like Linux, rough around the edges, techie oriented, quite unfriendly to uh, the average Joe. And Bitcoin adds this new economic component as well. It's a uh, a new new asset class, basically. And where you have an economic uh, a set of economic incentives, you have a set of game theory incentives and enterprise customers don't necessarily know how to navigate those waters. They don't necessarily uh, know uh, how to engage uh, with Bitcoin uh, specifically or blockchain more generally in a way that's compliant to uh, their, say, local anti-money laundering, know your customer regulations. They're, uh, they're quite concerned uh, potentially with reputational risk. And so uh, not, just, uh, not just with Bitcoin, but blockchain more, more widely, there was a very conscious effort to say, hey, there's this great kernel of technology. There's this powerful, highly secure, hasn't been hacked network. And uh, this is where the developers are going. All the developers, if you look on GitHub, if you look at uh, universities, et cetera, they're either uh, looking at uh, machine learning and, you know, i.e. AI, or they're looking at blockchain, cryptography, public key infrastructure, uh, smart contracts, digital identity, all these things that are in uh, blockchain and Bitcoin's wheelhouse. And so the message to, I think, FIs, and that's uh, started to resonate with, for example, uh, Block's uh, Vulcan partnership with Pricewaterhouse, uh, Libra, and NetKey, is there's there's really this uh, uh, recognition that that font of innovation in blockchain is coming from the public networks, the open source world, very specifically uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, and that's where you're getting a lot of the uh, interoperability, even with private and permission blockchains, is this software is where the innovation is happening. 
And uh, there are ways to ring fence these uh, capabilities, these networks in a, in a regulatory uh, compliant manner. And that's, uh, I think, the, going to be the story of 2017 is how blockchain, with Block's help, uh, you know, immodest uh, wink and a nod there, um, is going to uh, come out of its shell. And there's going to be this realization that blockchain is here to stay. It's a very, very innovative uh, force. It's a very a uh, powerful force that uh, really uh, starts to uh, shake the fundamentals of how businesses interact with each other, how uh, business flows and uh, legal uh, registrations, legal uh, uh, flows are adjudicated as well as executed. That's, uh, that's really the promise of uh, not just Bitcoin, but uh, moving beyond Bitcoin to blockchain, digital identity and smart contracts. I think that's really cool. I love this idea that where developers go, innovation follows and enterprise inevitably ends up. Uh, so if you're an enterprise, you're going to find yourself going where the developers are currently and the developers are doing one of two things, as you rightly point out. It's AI and machine learning or it's blockchain and or all of the technologies that sit around that, around public key infrastructure and uh, deterministic uh, networks, uh, etc. I think that's really quite interesting how if I were to summarize what it is that Block does, it's kind of making it safe, making it consumable um, and making it real. But in terms of making it real, should we dive into a couple of use cases here? Um, maybe there's some things you've seen clients do. Maybe there's some things that you're excited about when people ask you, OK, that's great. But what do I actually do with this? Like, what can I do now because Block exists that I couldn't do before? Is it just a new way to do stuff I already did or is, is there something new here? Absolutely. So it's uh, making, I, I think it's opening Bitcoin and blockchain to a much wider audience in that uh, before having uh, enterprise blockchain support for Bitcoin and soon we're going to be adding uh, Ethereum as well, is uh, it was really for an enterprise, you had to dedicate a lot of staff. You had to uh, download software off a website. You had to uh, depend on volunteers for uh, executing changes, accepting changes uh, that uh, you wish to make to that uh, particular piece of software. And that's very resource intensive. That's uh, potentially very off-putting. And uh, if you don't have any insights into uh, the community, insights into the roadmap, then uh, as uh, several uh, enterprises that we're aware of have done, they just simply said, we're not not going to touch this now. There's uh, there are too many uh, risk factors, uh, not just on the reputational side, but also on the, the very practical side of uh, who can I call at 3 a.m. if something breaks. So uh, this is uh, really taking blockchain and making it digestible to a wider audience. That's uh, absolutely what Block does. And our uh, primary product, uh, Block Enterprise for Bitcoin, is, uh, again, very uh, similar to uh, the Red Hat template. We take the best-of-breed, battle-tested uh, open-source software in blockchain, and uh, we package that up. We have uh, several packages in our stack today from uh, a router. That's what uh, other people might call a node. We call that a router because it's the basic piece of software that gives you connectivity into a network. Uh, blockchains are networks. 
We have a uh, digital wallet. We have uh, Java, JavaScript, and Python uh, programming libraries and developer environment for the developers. Uh, analytics. Uh, these are uh, new networks. These are uh, they have new economic behaviors. They have new metrics uh, that must be uh, analyzed, monitored, and visualized. And so we add an analytics package to that, as well as a uh, very new and innovative smart contract engine called Block Aura, O-R-A, which uh, offers a sort of Ethereum plus plus on top of Bitcoin. It's a Turing complete. The Ethereum guys love that uh, phrase. Turing complete uh, smart contract engine that brings Ethereum capabilities and more to Bitcoin and Bitcoin compatible chains. And so that uh, that that whole experience is wrapped in support, maintenance agreements, uh, guaranteed response times. Uh, that's something that uh, Bitcoin and blockchain has never had until uh, Block came along. So that uh, when uh, your blockchain uh, breaks at 3 a.m., if there's a uh, someone who is uh, knocking on your uh, virtual door that uh, you didn't expect, you can call us and we can have a uh, fix uh, pushed out into the field uh, in uh, sometimes a matter of hours. So that is uh, that's the the customer experience that's been lacking in blockchain to to this day. And then we augment that with certification, training, uh, pr- certainly uh, professional services. There are uh, a lot of people who are looking to have uh, blockchains built. And uh, that is uh, very much in Block's wheelhouse as well. The uh, I'd say uh, there's uh, one notable uh, distinction in the marketplace today, and that is between private, permissioned, and public blockchains. Those are uh, the sort of ring fences or uh, the distinguishing uh, marks between uh, many of the uh, blockchain offerings today. And uh, we very much uh, make the strategic choice and uh, encourage our customers to look at uh, that uh, font of innovation where those developers are working on uh, what they're working on and more importantly, what they're going to be working on six and 12 months down the road. And uh, what I saw at Red Hat was that open source and open networks for the customer lower significantly the total cost of ownership, TCO, such that if you have a proprietary blockchain, a proprietary blockchain developer, who uh, they're, uh, maybe their offering is open source, but is there a community of developers around it? That's the relevant question for uh, senior leadership at uh, banks around the world, insurance companies around the world, when I uh, point out other blockchain offerings, is, uh, is there a community of developers who are developing on this, helping support this, such that when someone buys a block offering, Actually, we have a monthly subscription to our block offering for licensing today is they have the confidence that they're being supported not just by block, but by block and a huge community of Bitcoin developers who are contributing to that base level set of software. So 12 months down the line, we'll be able to very easily and in a compatible manner integrate software that uh, the Bitcoin developers, both inside block as well as outside block, have contributed. And that's quite a distinction from 
a proprietary blockchain where it's ink not yet dry software and it's just one company contributing to that software, supporting that software. At the end of the day, that is essentially a railroad with a non-standard track size, a non-standard set of uh, engines and boxcars, and it uh, raises the cost for enterprise customers. So I think it's interesting that you've positioned yourselves as solving some of the challenges in the open public blockchain space because um, there are numerous ones if you are an enterprise, not least you know data privacy, but there are solutions to that, not least AML um, and fin crime and sanctions, but there are solutions to that. And I think um, you know sort of allowing people to realize that hey, you can solve these problems using open source software if you work with somebody that can actually do all of the other things that you need as an enterprise. I just wonder if um, the enterprise's initial instinct would be to buy the off-the-shelf software like they did with Microsoft in, in the short term. But listen, uh, Jeff, uh, we're kind of running out of time here, so I just wanted to ask very quickly before I let you get on with uh, with changing the world one line of code at a time, as, as I know you do. <laughs> Uh, then, uh, you know, where can people find out more about yourself? Where can people find out more about Block um, and any other thoughts? Uh, absolutely. Just to end uh, cap that, I'd say that uh, one of the projects that uh, we just launched last week with uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers and uh, two other uh, partners in the blockchain space, NetKey and Libra, is uh, something called Vulcan. And uh, that's uh, VulcanDAS.com. Vulcan Digital Asset Services, and that is uh, really an example of how uh, Block is helping other partners create a uh, ring-fenced go-to-market that brings Bitcoin and other digital currency services to tier one, tier two banks in a regulatory uh, compliant manner, whether you're looking for uh, digital assets, uh, Bitcoin specifically, your own digital assets, a uh, fiat coin, a uh, coin that's uh, pegged to a central bank currency or loyalty rewards points, you're going to need to uh, execute that in a way that makes your compliance and risk departments happy. And so uh, we partnered with uh, those uh, firms to take to market a, uh, a cloud offering that enables uh, banks to get up to speed and go to market very, very quickly in a way that uh is very innovative on one side, but uh, makes the risk and compliance guys happy on the other side. So I'd encourage uh, your listeners to uh, take a look at that. That's very exciting. To find out more about uh, myself and Block, go to block.com, B-L-O-Q.com. And uh, just uh, watch uh, the financial press. We're going to have some very exciting announcements uh, beyond uh, just Vulcan itself in the next couple months that uh, I think are uh, really going to uh, open Bitcoin and blockchain to a wider audience. These uh, blockchains are new networks. Uh, They're very exciting networks. I uh, like to uh, draw the analogy with uh, blockchains uh, being uh, at a conceptual level. They're uh, automated adjudicators for a set of rules. And so for the use case perspective, this is why So many sectors and industries from uh, not just uh, financial, uh, looking at insurance, looking at healthcare, looking at supply chain, looking at uh, asset tracking across 
large defense departments uh, and governments looking at digital identity registries. This touches so many different sectors. That's why there's so much energy around blockchain today. It's not just about moving digital currency from A to B. It's uh, really about uh, fundamentally changing the way that uh, parties get together, agree, execute those agreements, and uh, move forward at uh, light speed. Fantastic. Uh, Jeff, I want to thank you so much for your time. Suddenly, we, we are out of time, but I look forward to hearing more from Block and yourselves in the near future. Um, thanks for your time. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Simon. It's been fantastic. Thanks so much, Jeff. What a great interview. And now on to Jason's interview with Super Dave Bruno, where they talk about digital and wealth management and why Dave's always on the offense when it comes to innovation. Great. So I'm here with Dave Bruno, founder of Wynome and WM Innovation at UBS. Yeah. Wealth so, management. Then. Wealth management. So tell us a little bit about your background. You're obviously, you've told me you're, you're based in Switzerland, but you're not from Switzerland. No, with this accent, definitely not. Um, and I've never changed my accent because I like being authentic. Um, so I'm originally from near Boston, two hours west, and we have more horses than people, basically. Okay. Grew up playing ice hockey, so it's that Canadian belt. And I wanted to get to the big city, so I moved to Boston, then here to the beautiful city of London, and then shortly thereafter failed at being a ski professional in Switzerland and decided to get serious about my career and ended up in banking. So there you go. Wealth management, whenever I hear that and fintech, I immediately think robo-advisors. Is that where we're at? You know, robo for us was, when I first started looking at this, I was in a strategic area trying to figure out how do we become thought leaders for the industry. Um, So we have the most private wealth assets, but we also wanted to be the thought leaders driving the agenda. And when we looked around at that time in 2011-12, robo had just started and it was pre-moniker. And I don't think robo is the right term for it. I think it's automated portfolio replication. Um, And it's kind of attacking that lower layer of where we've already automated services. So you take the hands off the wheel to clients. Whereas, you know, the whole advisory space is where we're trying to do a lot more offense. So how do we digitize and make new value propositions? So for me, I don't have anything for or against robos. We've looked at, I've talked with maybe 100 or more of them. There's more than 500 that are either on the way to the market or already there. So there's a lot to look at, and mostly it's user experience, not a lot of patenting going on, and you can get through to the main core value proposition of it very quickly. So within a minute or two, you're onboarded. So I have a lot of respect for it, but at the same time, it's not the future of the industry for, you know, it's not the end of it. So what is the future of the industry? Well, I think there's a lot more to attack, and I'm a very offensive guy. You know, I grew up in kind of a militaristic mindset (laughs) with that. So, um, you know, privacy for services, for example. Because this year is the year of AI, so everybody's working on chatbots, voice bots. We've done it too, just to keep up with the pace. So I've got a voice bot on Amazon. We've got a couple of chatbots on the way. But that's not really where we want to go. It's more privacy services, open finance, and beyond banking. Those are the three big green fields that we're looking at intensively since about two years. So privacy, for example, is taking some startups like private machines, Digime, ZOA, and basically trying to create new value propositions where other people and other verticals are making the money or nobody's making the money yet. So tell me more about privacy services, because I actually don't know those startups that you mentioned. So I'm trying to understand sort of what's the value proposition there? What's great for clients? Well, I think private clients, wealthy people, have a lot of risk. You know, their kids go to private schools, people are protected, they have security officers on board. And when it comes to the digital world, these things are super dangerous. Uh I mean, everybody's already gotten in trouble with these one time, right? You've got 
the Dropbox thing, you've got Instagram, and a couple drunken photos and your reputation is ruined forever. Uh-huh. And that can happen to someone deep down in your family and you can't really control it. So very wealthy people have full-time security officers uh-huh. and they can look after their reputation online in the digital world and that of their family and their loved ones, and which results in their reputation and their wealth, their businesses. And the poor rich guys, so those middle class of people, just above a million up to whatever, 20, 50 million, they don't have access to all that. So we're trying to create this other layer of services that you could use to identify risks yourself, control your data, control your reputation, and look after your businesses better. So I I saw, um, or Sarah provided me with one of your quotes where uh, you said, there's a massive untapped opportunity for banks to attack other industries. Is this one of those industries or are there other areas that you you think banks will go after? Thank you, Sarah, for looking at that quote. It's (laughs) one of my favorite quotes ever because (laughs) it's all about offense. You've got to go, if we think we can sit back in defense and just react to digital and quote the Kodak example for the next 20 years and survive on doing financial transactions for super wealthy people, we're dead wrong. What happens is the pace of decline accelerates and at some point you're out of business and therefore you've got to create new P&L. So new line items that you didn't have before. So the 3M example, so corporate innovation done right allows enough to happen where you can use these little suckers to create new businesses. And so we're trying to really actively create new USPs, you know, unique service selling propositions Mm. um, in those other things that I was talking about. So banks uh, to the man in the street is a fairly fairly sort of narrow proposition. How do you define banks in a way that allows them to attack other areas? Well, if you look at the Bank of England, I love being in London because it always reminds me with those big, formidable walls, you know, 15 meters tall, it said, don't come near us. And for those of you inside, you're in the circle of trust here, right? You've, you're in a very safe zone. And that's always been the, the sense of a bank is it's private, it's discreet, it looks after me, it protects me. And anything that goes towards that for clients, whether it be with collectibles, art, whether it's their secondary investing, whether it's their businesses, their family, I think we have to be there. And other vertical industries do that. If you take the wealth um, art industry, for example, it's a 60 billion transaction flow per year. I covered that in a recent episode. Mm -hmm. And we're nowhere near it. So there's other consultants and shysters basically sucking up that service. Mm -hmm. And more than half the world's wealth is in the hand of people that we know. Mm -hmm. So we should really be at that. So I guess that leads to not only other industries, but other market segments. You know, UBS is, you know, the bank for the, the ultra-wealthy, the, those billionaires. You know, is there any appetite for going, you know, lower in the market for, for starting to take on those poor wealthy with, uh, you know, a million to five million? Right. Well, I say it below. Facetiously. Do those do people exist? Yeah, I say it facetiously. But <laughs> you know what I mean? It's the yeah, affluent yeah, market who's been kind of left in a hole um, between what's happened over the last five to ten years after the crisis, right? Mm-hmm. So they're not as well looked after as the super rich. Mm-hmm. And basically we're trying to extend the, what's happened for the super rich, which is ultra bespoke family office type service or multifamily offices is called, back into the other people, mm-hmm. you know, who can use the same level of service, but at a reasonable scalable price point in business, which means you've got to do it digitally first. So the smart wealth example, which I gave earlier today, is one example here in the UK where we're trying to extend out the business model and do it digitally. And so do you see, you know, software eating the world? Is this really about digitization and, and, you know, a move towards scalable services for everyone? I hope so. 
because it's the world I want my kid to live in. It's the world I want to live in, actually. I take a lot of satisfaction out of, I can learn at a faster pace than I could as a kid where I had books, encyclopedias, and National Geographic growing up in the U.S. Uh And that's where I could really absorb myself and learn. And people still want to learn. And now they don't want to get fed a research report about something that doesn't interest them. Mm -hmm. They'll surf YouTube, Mm -hmm. and they select what they want to look at, and then they'll listen to that. So the concept of, you know, banks creating research and a view about everything and stochastically pushing that out on the market has ended mm-hmm. and people are going to pull in. So at the end of the day, I can see a world where, you know, analysts are paid for the amount of clicks they get in a sense, right? So mm-hmm. how loved is my article? Did it go viral? You know, is it the Gangnam style this year of research on real estate? Sure. So, I mean, that's something that 11FS that we talk about a lot, this whole B2C channels to do B2B marketing, the the age of the white paper and the analyst report and talking at a conference is giving way to, to reaching people with people. And, you know, I, I think you're, you know, pretty well known for MakerZone for your YouTube channel, which is, you know, growing uh, gangbusters. And what interests me there is the that's not a UBS wealth management you know persona. No, it's actually not. And I try to never mix it with the brand because I don't want the bank to feel uncomfortable. And yet at the same time, as an innovation chief, I'm always trying to push the boundaries. What we learned is that the only way to get proper exposure for sandbox pilots for things without paying millions in marketing money, which I don't have access to actually, is to create an audience. So what I'm trying to do is create an audience with MakerZone, with David Bruno at YouTube, is basically all about us showing things to the world and then getting their interaction to customer feedback on what we're trying to do. So it's just us being good corporate citizens sure. and not staying behind that closed Bank of England wall, but kind of opening it up a bit. And, and how's that working? Do you get feedback? Do people send questions? Do you, you, know, do you get audience participation? They do, and they kind of tell us what to innovate on. <laughs> Because a lot of people would just hocus pocus, chase fintech brands, look at what's called logo vomit, right? And say, wow, there's 600 peer-to-peer lenders. We should be nervous. And they stop there. My job is to make stuff. Mm -hmm. So I am trying to create the future by actively creating it, which means my guys will put their hands on it, roll up their sleeves, try to make a product, get it out. You know, so a very minimum basic thing. It could be paper. It could be video and say, Mm -hmm. is this what you wanted? And with that art example, what we learned was they, the clients who we looked at it with said, that's not what I want. So we're back to the drawing board right now. You know, I failed again, but I like that process because I learn a lot more faster. And by learning more faster, I'm ahead of other people. So what's your best episode so far? What's your kind of the, the key moment we should look for? I loved the Amazon Alexa um, episode because people loved it, because they could see what we're actually doing and they could see that it doesn't work half the time, right? Uh But we're out there on the bleeding edge of technology and trying to use something that I couldn't get access to a year and a half ago, which super frustrated me. So trying to do voice pilots a year and a half, two years ago was like all about administrative process and big budgets. And now it's just about trying stuff. So I've got one guy on 20% of his time basically trying it and we're, we're able to learn faster. But that sounds like a, you know, pulling out an episode where something didn't work or it was funny seems like a very authentic human kind of characteristic. Uh, Is that something you see in, you know, coming to the fore in financial services? You know, I think there's a huge cultural aspect to trying to change. First of all, I believe in innovating because I think corporations still have a huge potential to change the world. Mm -hmm. There is everyone isn't Elon Musk. There's a lot of guys who sit behind the desks in the banking industry right now who have the knowledge to change the industry and want to. And we have to enable them to do that. And that means they have to be in a comfortable environment where they feel like I can actually try something. 
So my mission is kind of create that environment. I'm not the smartest guy in the room. I'm not the best banker in the room. I'm not the most technocrat. I can't even code. So I'm basically blind to the new world. But what I can do is motivate people to do it and then give them the freedom to do it. So basically, move, I'm an ex-hockey player. So if you can move people out from in front of the net and create yourself some space, um, you can shoot a goal just because you had that extra space. And I'm just trying to give them space. Well, that's amazing. Dave, thanks for, uh, for taking some time You're to welcome. talk to us. Where do people find you again? Uh, again, on David Bruno on YouTube and at Super Dave Bruno on Twitter. And ask me questions. Honestly, it's open innovation, so I'm trying to learn fast, which means I'm open for your questions. Thank you, Dave. And thank you, Jason. So make sure you guys check out his YouTube series, MakerZone. Such great fun, and I'm sure you'll learn a ton from Super Dave Bruno and the guys at UBS. That's it for now. Hope you've enjoyed these interviews. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe to our FinTech Insider podcast, review us on iTunes, befriend us on Facebook, Twitter, and send carrier pigeons our way. We love any type of communication. That's all, fellow FinTech Insiders. Talk to you soon.